for that block and you'll walk out not blessed. Having said all that, <laughs> I want Jeremiah to come minister to us tonight from the word and, and you share what's on your heart tonight. Thank you, brother. It's up to John chapter 1. And uh, I've appreciated you putting up with me so far this week. We've got a couple more services left, plus this one. And I want to look with you. I want to jump back uh, an evening, or I want to jump back uh, a couple passages. We were going to look at uh, uh, a different passage tonight, and I really wasn't sure exactly where we were going to be, but went ahead and decided to look at uh, John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 through 39. And I want to share that with you this evening. And uh, what, what, what John is doing, and uh, we, we looked a little bit of this in the first chapter already, uh, covered this in introduction to one of the other messages. But uh, what John is doing here, it seems, is I've always wondered this. I've always wondered this. I've always wondered why we don't have the calling of all 12 disciples um, in the Word. Uh, why no author talks about the calling of each of each disciple, of all 12 disciples. I've often wondered that. I don't know if you've wondered that. And I, I've come to the conclusion uh, as a young Christian, come to the conclusion that, well, maybe uh, the disciples have their, or the gospel writers have their favorites. Maybe there's uh, one disciple who's just a little bit more important than another disciple. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I've really kind of uh, thought about that uh, for the longest time and maybe even thought that for a time. But I've really begun to come away from that because what, what I've come to the conclusion is in the Word is that these are not historical accounts of the life of Jesus. They're not. Uh, these are letters with a, an intended purpose of teaching us about Jesus Christ. They're very much intended to be evangelistic letters. And so what happens is, especially with John, John's very unique in his writing, uh, he's got, he'll give you a story and there'll be two things that's going on at all times in the story. And we're going to talk about this here in a, in a minute in more depth. But there is just the physical story of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of something that happens and there's a story there, but then there's a deeper underlying story as well. There's a hidden spiritual meaning in that. Uh, and Jesus, uh, of course, is recorded about, uh, having that kind of effect all the way throughout the Gospel of John. So when you look in this first chapter, what's going on here in verses 35 through the end of that first chapter, uh, verse 51, there's the calling of five particular disciples here. Five particular disciples. And they are Andrew, and then there's another disciple that's not mentioned. We're, we're calling him John. They think that's who it is. Uh, best guess. But it's uh, Andrew and John, and then it's Simon Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip. So there are five disciples called in this section. And what's going on here is that uh, there is, uh, uh, well, he's picking and choosing these particular disciples. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture for us of kind of what he's talking about in being uh, what it means to be a disciple. So he takes five disciples and he uses them to kind of lay a foundation of what it means to be a disciple. And instead of preaching for four hours on this, we've divided it up in four sections, unless you want to go for the whole thing tonight. It's up to you. And, um, but we've divided it up into four sections. We've divided it up in verses 35 through 39, verses 40 through 42, uh, verses 43 through 46, and then verses 47 through 51. And we've kind of called them four principles uh, of discipleship. Four principles of what it means to be a disciple. And I want to look at you, uh, look at you, I want to look at you, but I want to look with you this evening uh, at the first principle of discipleship. Uh, the first principle of the first foundation of what we're talking about when we refer to being a disciple, when we refer to being a Christian. I've struggled with this. I've really struggled with the meaning 
of what does it mean to be a Christian. Um, I don't give my testimony much, and uh, I'm not going to tonight, but uh, I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and um, I was raised Mormon. I think I already said that in one of the other services. And um, I was always confused and, uh, as, as a child because there was two separate lives lived in front of me. Two separate lives. So bear with me here for a minute. But I could wear certain clothes with my friends, but I couldn't wear them to church on Sunday. Uh, I could tell certain jokes outside of church, uh, and I could tell certain jokes inside of church. Most of the time, couldn't tell any jokes inside of church. Um, I had to talk one way in church, talk another way outside of church. Dress one way, as I already said, dress another way inside of church. I listened to a certain type of music in church and a certain type of music out of church. And so what ended up coming to reality in my life is it was two different lives that were being lived. Two different lives that were being lived. And it was, it was concreted in my thinking in looking at my parents. Because we would argue and they end up getting a divorce and breaking up. But they would, they would argue and bicker and fuss and fight all week long. And then Sunday morning would come along and we'd argue and bicker and fuss and fight. And then we'd go to church and... How are you doing? Oh, praise God. And I struggled with that. I hated that. That didn't make any sense to me. And I didn't understand why I, we had certain rules in my household. Cannot play basketball on Sunday, Jeremiah. It's a day of rest. Now come on in here and sit down. Let's watch the Indiana game on TV. <laughs> made no sense to me. I didn't make any sense whatsoever. Didn't make any sense whatsoever. Couldn't work on Sunday, yet preachers, you can't even catch them at home because they're working all day. Sundays, I'd work harder on Sunday than I do any other day of the week. So I really struggled with this. I really struggled with this as a kid. And growing up, I, I didn't have any much guidance, so I didn't struggle with these things anymore, and I just said, ah, oh, forget it, and went out and lived my life the way I wanted to. But eventually, God tracked me down, and I, I came to realize that He is real, that there is a God. He's dying for a relationship with me. And once I came back to relationship with Jesus, I thought, okay, hey, I want, I, I'm serious this time. I know it's the truth. Hey, I want to live my life right. How do I live it? And so, I go to church, and of course, I grew up, uh, right before my parents divorced, I went to a Nazarene church, so I went back to that same church and began to be a Nazarene. And, um, I developed what I kind of call a, a list. And it was what was shown to me. It was what was shown to me. And uh, there were certain things on, on, on the list in my church. But it's really interesting. For instance, I could go up to a teenager and I could say, hey, man, uh, uh, how's your walk? How's your walk? How are you doing? And the teenager would look at me and go, oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, went to church last Sunday. It's on top of my list, going to church. Got to go to church to be a Christian. That's right. Went to church last Sunday, doing really well. And uh, I've been listening in Sunday school. I haven't been talking or passing notes anymore. Been doing really well there. And I don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. And I don't watch bad movies anymore. And I don't listen to Corn or Marilyn Manson. That's a big one. And, uh, of course, uh, and they, they put together this list for me of what it means to be a Christian. Senior hire. So that's neat. But what happened was, is I go up to a, another person in the congregation, an adult, full-blown adult full-blown adult person. And I say, hey, uh, how are you doing? How's your walk? Oh, really good. And you know what they do? They show me a list, but it's a different list. It's a different list than this fellow over here. How's your walk? Well, I'm doing really well. I've been uh, teaching Sunday school. Yeah, I have. And of course, I tithe. Yeah, I've been tithing. Really been tithing. 
and paid the evangelist, bought some of his tapes. Really like that kind of stuff. Yep, it's right there. And uh, and uh, and he gives me he gives me a list. Gives me a list, which is fine. But so I go to Olivet and I meet people who aren't Nazarenes. And lo and behold, they get a different list. How's your walk? Oh, good deal. And uh, of course, uh, there's dress list. There's makeup list. There's jewelry. Can't have an earring. That's right. It's on my list right here. Down to 25. That's it right there. And uh, they, they've got lists. So I really struggled, man. What in the world's a Christian? Uh, two years ago, I got to go over work in Africa. <laughs> man, they've got lists. And uh, I was in the raw bush area of Kenya. And just trying to be honest with you, I... I go and show up Sunday morning in the raw, I mean, this was raw, outback, bush area, Kenya. I mean, no, they had no running water, no electricity. I mean, these guys were primitive. And so I show up to church on Sunday looking like a preacher. Standing at the front door, shaking hands as they come in, making jokes. Of course, they didn't understand me. They didn't speak English. And so I'm, I'm saying hi. And as I, as I begin to see people come in, uh, I, was, I was blown away because everyone... Guy and girl alike coming in from here up wore beads. That's all they wore was beads. <laughs> beads don't cover much. Um, so I was real, I was set back. Uh, they began to come and I was, uh, good morning. How, how are you doing? Come on in. Nice to meet you. Come on in. How are you doing? Open your Bibles up to John chapter 1. And... Do you know what I found? I was on their list, beads. I was on their list, beads. And so I, I came back with the conclusion that, well, and I, I, I was struggling with this, and I, I, I came back to the conclusion that we don't know what Christianity is. I don't think anybody does. Because if Christianity means, and maybe it doesn't mean anything. I, because if Christianity means something to you, it means something to you, and something to you, and something to you, well, it don't mean anything. It don't mean anything. And so I was really puzzled. And this is about the time, and I had been struggling with, and God had been doing something in my life, I began to, something happened to me. Something happened to me as a minister. I began to read this book, not to support my list. I began to read this book, not to prove entire sanctification. I began to read this book, not to back up my sermon that I'd worked up. I began to do something that was radical and almost unheard of. I began to read this book just to find out what it says. One day I sat down and said, what in the world is a Christian? And I began to read through the Gospel of John. And I've been saturating in this book ever since. Two and a half years. I'm a little slow. I'm only in chapter two. But I just, I've been reading and finding out what it means to be a Christian. And I was blown away. I was blown away. So there's four things. And I, we're not going to get the other three, so you'll probably never find out what a Christian is. But we're going to look at the first thing tonight. That's a little evangelistic humor. I'm just using but I want to look at the first principle of what John lists as being a Christian tonight. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy this. So it's verses 35 through 39, and it's, 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 a, it's a fundamental for John. It's a bottom line type of thing. It's what Israel always struggle with. I want to read that to you, and then we'll pray. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said 
and had followed Jesus. Whoa, I read too far. Go back to verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where we were staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Father, we love you this evening. I thank you for this opportunity, for coming into your presence. I thank you for your word. I thank you for teaching me and opening my eyes to what it means to walk with you. I pray that you would fill this place with your presence tonight. I pray that you would cast down everything that would acknowledge itself against the truth of your word. And I pray that you would bring us into intimate, personal, close relationship with you and challenge us. And we ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Read a little long there. I read it in verse 40. But uh, I want to look with you this, uh, this evening at verses 35 through 39, and it's a really neat story. Two things going on here. Um, it's, it's a neat little story that's happening. You have John the Baptist who has went out and he's begun to witness. And he's begun to, of course, he, he's the forerunner of Christ. So he's got his ministry going on. And he's got some disciples around him. John had disciples. And he's got these disciples that are with him and working with him. We find out more about that in chapter 3. Uh, but we find that John's out here and he's witnessing about Jesus. And he's seizing passing, passing by. It's the first time that he sees him. Actually, this is the second time in verse 35. Uh, he sees Jesus walking by. And he says to his disciples, or he says out loud, Behold, behold the Lamb of God. Whoa, there he is. Well, two of his disciples, the word tells us, hears him say this. They hear him say this. And so they begin to follow Jesus. Now, this following um, is just, it, it's a really, it's a physical word. It's, it's, a, it's a term that denotes just a physical following uh, in terms of like if uh, Howie got up and walked out of the room and I would happen to get up and just follow him. That's the type of following we're talking about. It's, no, it's not loaded with anything. It's just a physical following. And so what you have is, is you have that Jesus is passing by. John witnesses, hey, this is, the, this is the one. Hey, that's the Lamb of God right there as he walks by. And two disciples hear John say this, and they begin to follow after Jesus. And the, the picture that's painted for us is that Jesus, they don't come up and address him immediately. They don't go up and say, hey, hey, John just said that. They don't say anything like that. They just kind of begin to follow him. And the idea is they begin to follow him at a distance, kind of behind him some ways. Uh, for what happens is, is you have that Jesus is walking along and he probably hears someone behind him. He's probably left the crowd because there's all kinds of people walking around everywhere. But he gets off by himself. He's headed somewhere and he hears someone behind him and he turns around and he sees two guys following him. And he turns around as a simple question. He says, hey, what do you want? Why are you following me? Why are you stalking me? What do you want from me? That's what he says. Uh, when the two disciples, verse 37, heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and says, what do you want? Why are you following me? What do you want? That's that, that type of thing. And they address him in the most interesting way. This is what the word says. They said, Rabbi, and then John wants to make sure you understand what he's talking about. So he gives you, an, uh, gives you a clue to what Rabbi means. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher... Where are you staying? Now, again, you're not Jewish. You wouldn't catch this whole thing, what's going on here. But there's kind of like an unwritten, uh, there's kind of a taken for granted type of uh, a statement, something going on here. Uh, for instance, I get done uh, preaching on Sunday morning. If someone comes up to me and goes, hey, uh, what are you doing for lunch? What are they asking me? You don't know? Yeah, do you want to come with me to lunch? You guys with me tonight? <laughs> someone comes up to me after the morning service and says, hey, you got anything planned? That tells me they want to ask me something. They want to know what I'm doing. They want to take me with them, that type of thing. So there's an unwritten, unsaid type of thing going on here. When they come up to him and they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, there's a, there's a really interesting things with rabbis back in this day. Uh, rabbis were uh, these teachers in the first century who had these students. 
And the literal translation, uh, what they called these students, were called disciples. And what the literal translation of a disciple, the literal translation of that word is learner. So you had these rabbis who had these learners. And they were teachers. And it was a teacher-student relationship. And it was really interesting. It was really kind of a neat thing. Because what happened would be is you had these rabbis that would, that would be these teachers. And their students or their disciples would not just, uh, would not just uh, come and report to school every day at 8 o'clock. Go home at 3 like our kids do, uh, your kids do. But they would literally come and live with their rabbi. They would live with them. And wherever the rabbi would go, the students would also go. John the Baptist, had, uh, he was considered a teacher. He, was con- he, he, he had his own learners or disciples. And wherever John went, they went. Jesus had his disciples. And we know that wherever Jesus went, his students went. This is the relationship. And so you have these two followers who were disciples of John come up to Jesus. And they immediately address him as, ah, rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? And so what they're alluding to is, hey, as we were disciples of John, we want to be disciples of you. Where are you staying? Can we come and stay with you? Can, we, can, can you be our teacher? Can you be our rabbi? And, of course, Jesus responds back and he looks at them and he says, come, in verse 39, and you will see. And it leads us to believe almost that he's saying, well, come, you can see where I'm staying. But the real gist of what he's saying is, come, you, you know, you think you understand what it means to be a disciple. You think you understand what that means. You think you want that. Well, come on. And you'll see. Come on and you'll see what it means. And so he takes them with him and they find out where he's staying. They spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. And what happens is you have these two disciples who come with Jesus. And of course he ends up recruiting some more. But they come with Jesus and they live with him. They stay with him. And over the next six chapters of the gospel according to John, you find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I want to walk with you just briefly uh, through the first six chapters of the gospel according to John. Won't that be neat? So we'll look, we'll, uh, look over with me to chapter 2, and we've been studying this already, uh, and we don't even need to spend much time here. But you have this wedding, uh, you have the disciples who are with him at this time, and they show up to this wedding, and there's this phenomenal miracle done. No one even knows that there was a miracle done. Um, but uh, come down to verse 11, and it says, This is the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And so they begin to follow Jesus. They've got their questions. You've got all these disciples. And they see this, they see this thing. They've been watching him like a hawk thing. Hey, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Wow. And they're just watching him and intently focusing on him. And they're, they're, apparently they see the miracle. No one else did. But they see the miracle. They see the miracle that he did. And they put their faith in him. They say, oh, I believe. Hey, I believe he's the one. I believe he's the Christ. I believe he's the Messiah. So they begin to follow him. Now, I want to make a break here real quick. Disciples. The disciples don't have it all together. You, you know that, don't you? The disciples, like everyone else, uh, had a preconceived idea of who God was. They had a preconceived notion of who this Messiah would be. Uh, you see, the Jews had underwent this, this incredible persecution. They had been toppled by kingdom, by kingdom, by kingdom. Finally, the Romans came in, and uh, they were ruling the people. And, of course, it was just a terrible... I mean, uh, some 50 years before Jesus came, they had lined the streets of Jerusalem with crosses and crucified thousands and thousands of people. You know the story. And so they, they had this idea, this Messiah, this king coming, who would come and he would set up God's kingdom that would last forever and ever and ever. And he would come and he would topple off the Romans and he would be the king and it would be... I mean, th- th- this is the Messiah that they were waiting for because they constantly kept asking Jesus, hey, when are you going to set up your kingdom? 
when are we going to lead the raid? Hey, when's it going to happen? When is it going to happen? And Jesus constantly kept pointing them away from that. Because they were focused in places that Jesus was not focused in. And you're going to begin to see that in a moment. But they were kind of, they were all about competition. They were all about, um, they were all about success. They were really, they were, they were vying for position among one another. And we talked about this uh, in Matthew, if you recall, uh, where Jesus chastises them about, not, uh, about uh, lording their, their authority over one another. Uh, for instance, two of them, James and John, who were, who were brothers, uh, were often competitive about uh, who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the Father in heaven, or right hand and, uh, his right hand and, and left hand in the kingdom when Jesus came into his kingdom. Who's going to be on his power? Who's going to be on his throne with him? And they were all concerned about that kind of stuff. And so at this point, this is very, this is very important that you catch this. I'm going to give it away at the beginning. Since you're all so excited tonight, I want to keep your attention. There are... You have these disciples that are following Jesus physically. They're physically following. Uh, they're, they're going where he's going. Uh, they're at the miracles that he does. They see them. Uh, they're following him to the places where he goes. Hey, he's at a wedding. They're at the wedding. They're physically following him. But you're going to find out very quickly that even though they're physically following Jesus, they're not spiritually following Jesus. There are two things that are going on, as I said earlier, in the Gospel of John at all times. There's a, there's a physical thing going on, and there's a spiritual thing going on. For instance, you have Jesus, and he's arguing with these Pharisees. And, uh, and, and of course, th- th- they're just spiritually blind to what's going on. And so Jesus looks at them and goes, you are blind. And they go, <laughs> blind? What are you talking about? We can see just fine. And they start making fun of this blind man over here and say, oh, I, suppose he, I, suppose, I suppose we're as blind as this blind man over here. And Jesus says, no, he can see. And they don't understand. But Jesus wasn't talking about physical blindness. He was talking about spiritual blindness. And so he will say something that will be seemingly just a normal, physical, ordinary average, but he'll have loaded with spiritual meaning. You know this. Did you know that it's possible to physically come to church every single Sunday and yet spiritually have never been to church. I've seen this as an evangelist and of course not here, but I've seen this as an evangelist standing in churches before and having revivals and looking at the congregation as they're going. And I've been, uh, I've been and, and, hey, I'm not going to point my fingers at the congregation because I've, I've done it myself. Have you ever done this? you ever be sitting in the service and worshiping? See, they oftentimes, how he has it, praise the Lord, they often make me sit up front somewhere in these like big thrones or something, you know, <laughs> and I just sit up there and look at everybody and, you know, and, uh, but uh, I'll be sitting in churches and I'll be at worship. You ever do this? You ever be worshiping and be, be really into worship and then all of a sudden go, oh no, did I leave the iron on? <laughs> I left the iron on, didn't I? I did. I, I hope the dog didn't knock it over. One of my fifth wheels burned. Can I see it? And all this is going on in my head, but I know the song so well. I've sang them so long that my lips never stop moving. And my mind is, and yet I'm. And I've been so off in my own little land before that I've, I've come to and realized that I, in front of everybody, I'm the only one standing. That I'm the only one standing there. And of course, when I come to, everybody looks at me, and I think, what do I do? So I just go... Praise the Lord. <laughs> and I sit down. And of course, people in the congregation always go, wow, 
Do you see that? He is spiritual. Wow. Feel that right there. Feel that. Gives me goosebumps. And they had no idea that physically I was worshiping. But somehow I'd never worshiped spiritually. Which tells me something about tells me something about being a disciple. That it's not necessarily about the physical things we're doing. It's about the inside. Because you can physically come to church every Sunday and yet somehow maybe never have come to church. Wouldn't that be frightful? I wasn't going to share this. One of you gave me a comic. Who was it this week? I forget. Oh, he's not even here tonight. He's skipping. He's out of his dancing or something. But um, <laughs> one, one of these guys gave me a comic. Can I tell it to him? Yeah. He gave me this comic. He came in. I thought it was great. And he handed me this comic. And it shows this long line of these people in robes who obviously have died. And, and they're coming up. And you see St. Peter with these wings and, and this thing around his head, this halo. And this guy's coming back with this frown on his face. And he's got this, like, got this piece of paper with writing on it with like this ribbon or certificate stamped stamp to it. And he's got this frown, and someone says, what's wrong? And, and then he picks up the conversation right where, I guess, where they'd been left off. And he says, well, I went up, and they verified my perfect church attendance. Then they gave me the certificate and sent me on my way to hell. <laughs> <laughs> he had been to church every single Sunday. You didn't get the Arab joke the other night either. But anyway, they, <laughs> the deal is, is he had been to church every single Sunday. And yet somehow... <clears throat> never been to church and so what you have at this point and you got to i want to give this to you early is you have these disciples that they believe in jesus they go wow he's the one and they have put their faith in him he's the messiah but you see they're not living where jesus is living and they're not following the way jesus wants them to follow are they, are they dressing the right way? Sure. Are they saying the right things? Oh, yeah. Do they know all the right? Yeah, they know all the right things to say. Hey, are they following? Oh, yeah, they're never late for me. All that. But see, you can somehow be doing all of that and miss it. And so you have these disciples that are beginning to follow, and you begin to see this come more clearly. Uh, of course, by the, but before that, you've got Jesus who is doing some phenomenal things. Right after the wedding, Jesus goes into this temple, which I'm working on this passage right now, and it's really exciting, because Jesus is pictured as a servant. At the wedding, he's this servant meeting the needs of the people. But he comes into the temple and he's flipping over tables. He's making whips. He's cracking people over the head. He's kicking goats, letting doves go. And you're thinking, this is a servant? Oh, oh yes, it is. But I ain't going to tell you about it this time. I'll tell you about it another time. But anyway, he goes into the temple and it's phenomenal. I mean, he, 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 he's got passion. He's got zeal. He's got drive. And he's preaching. He could almost be an evangelist. And you come down to verse 17 and it says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so, of course, he, he's, he's there and the Pharisees uh, are really upset about all this and they demand a sign and Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the disciples go, whoo, did you hear that? Wow, look at this guy. He's the, What's he going to do? Well, look at him. And they're focused on him. And, of course, the next scene you have that Jesus has just made such a stink in the temple that they, that, that, that evening they're out and, of course, uh, they've got this, and I'll tell you this story instead of reading it. I make it sound better. And you've got the disciples who are probably gathered around this fire. And Jesus is lying against this tree. And, um, I mean, they're still talking about the temple and what he was doing, and they're going, wow, did you see that? Did you see him? Well, I saw him. Whoa, he was really cool. And they're all talking about it. Listen, look at him. Oh, he's laying. Oh, wow, wow. And they're just gazing at him. And they begin to see this. They begin to hear, probably it's nighttime, they begin to hear some rustling, and they're thinking, oh, no. Is it a camel? Is it a bear? What is this? And they see this guy making his way in the limelight as the light kind of flickers. 
And he's no ordinary fella. Um, he's got these long flowing robes. He's got these big tassels. He's got scripture that he's been, and that's on a box on his forehead. He's, well, he's, he's a Pharisee. He's a leader of Israel. I mean, he's way on the, what's he doing out here at this time of night? I mean, he, what's he doing? And you see him as he walks past them and they're kind of looking at him. And they go up and, and they can't necessarily hear what he begins to say because he's a way off. They're really listening. But they see him kind of engage Jesus. That's kind of probably the scene, maybe. And so what you see is you see this, uh, you see this conversation between Jesus and this Pharisee going on. And, and they see that the Pharisee, he, he's, he's, he's obviously questioning about what happened today. And, of course, we know the passage that, that uh, Nicodemus is saying, hey, we, sh- we know that you're a great teacher. Hey, no one could do the things you're doing. But he's questioning. And then you see that the disciples see how the demeanor begins to change. They see that Jesus begins to, and he's making these hand gestures, and, he's, and Nicodemus kind of leans back, and he sits down with his hands on his, on his chin, and Jesus kind of leans forward, and they're thinking, he's now teaching the leaders of Israel. And they're going, wow. I mean, this, look who is. And they're watching this whole scene, and Jesus has literally, it seems, taken a position of, because the leaders of Israel are coming out to see Jesus. We can understand this is not normal behavior, even in our society. Uh, no teenagers here tonight. Oh, there's one right over there. Okay. I needed you tonight. I thought she was going to bail on me. What's your name, young lady? Yes. Emily. She's not a young lady? She's not a teen. The other two are. Oh, well, you look like a teen to me. Okay, Emily. Emily, you go to school. And let's say Emily gets in trouble, which probably never happens. And um, the principal wants to see Emily. Now, which scenario, Emily? Emily, you with me? Okay. Which, which scenario would happen? Um, Emily is instructed to come to the principal. Would Emily uh, be walking down the hall, scenario one, be walking down the hall, and the, and the principal waiting by her locker, waiting by her locker, kind of standing there, twiddling his thumbs. When Emily comes close, he says, Emily, I really need to see you about something. Uh, can you fit me in your schedule sometime today? What, 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 what's noon look like to you? You got lunch? Oh, that's all right. What about uh, 12.30? Hey, can, can you put me in your schedule? That's scenario one. Or would it be, Emily gets in trouble. Scenario two, she gets this nasty note with this young lady who comes down to the, comes down to the classroom, bangs on the door and says, is Emily here? Interrupts her schedule, interrupts her class time, and Emily has to drop whatever she's doing and come all the way down the office and report because they've got a problem. Which scenario do you think is most likely to happen? One or two? Two. Two. Good job, Emily. You're correct. Two. <laughs> That's what's most likely to happen. But that's not what happens here. Jesus goes and he makes this big stink. And instead of them coming out, sending and dragging Jesus in, they're coming out to see him. It's totally opposite. It's totally the And the disciples see this. And they're going, wow. I mean, even the leaders of Israel are cowling down to this guy. Whoa, it's any day now. We're going to be sitting up. We're going to be taking over. It's a new show. And they're all comparing and talking about this. And that's the scene. But it doesn't stop there because John begins to paint a different picture for us. Um, the next section in chapter 3 is John the, Be- John the Baptist and Jesus are out in the desert together. Uh, it's verses 22 through the end of chapter 3. And you see that John the Baptist, is, he is, he's out here ministering and baptizing. And then you've got Jesus who's also ministering and baptizing. Now, now John the Baptist, you understand, was phenomenal. Jesus said he was the greatest ever born among a woman. Ever born. I mean, he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament hour. He, I mean, this guy could preach. My goodness. He was, I mean, thousands upon thousands of Jews come out to hear him. Did you know that even Herod would come out to listen to John the Baptist? Even the Romans from time to time would come out and listen to John because he was just incredible. 
But what Jesus, or what John shows us here, is that you've got John and some of his disciples are baptizing, and Jesus and some of his disciples are baptizing, and what it shows is that all the people who are listening to John were beginning to come over to Jesus. And what is happening is that Jesus' ministry is even exceeding that of John the Baptist's ministry. And so what you have is, is thousands upon thousands of people that are hearing Jesus and his ministry is sailing. And you have his disciples who are physical, spiritual. You have his disciples who are following him. And Jesus hasn't addressed it thus far, but he addresses it the first time in chapter 4. Because you come into chapter 4, they're walking through this town, it's Samaria, it's over there in the distance, and there's this well here. And of course the disciples, uh, the Jews were prejudiced against Samaritans because basically they were like half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and so they were kind of discounted, they were, they were beneath the rest of the Jewish population. And so the disciples are with uh, Jesus and they're walking, and Jesus is tired, he sits down at this well, and the disciples say, yeah, go ahead and rest, you don't want to go in this kind of town anyway. Hey Peter, come on up here, you come in front, and we're going to go in and get something to eat, you hang out here. And so Jesus says, go ahead. So they go into the town, but while they're gone, something happens, doesn't it? you got this woman who comes out, and I ain't going to go into the whole story, but she's, got a, she's, she's obviously an outcast because all the women would come together in the morning. They would all go to places together. They still do that today. And they would all come out together, with, and they would do their work before daylight because it was cooler, and they would do that, and they worked together. But she was coming out in the hot of the day, the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, all by herself. She had braided hair. She obviously was a prostitute that Jesus points out. But she comes out. Jesus offers her friendship. He offers her equality. I mean, he, he makes a covenant with her with the changing of the cup, offering her a drink to sup with her, that kind of thing. And he builds this relationship with her. And, of course, at that moment, you have the disciples that are coming back. Listen to what happens in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want to her? Or why are you talking with her to Jesus? Then leaving her water jar, because she saw these 12 thugs coming, she runs back to town. And in verse 31, listen to what the disciples say. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Hurry, for she comes back. Eat something. We've got some food for you. And Jesus responds in verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What do you think Jesus was talking about? Physical food or spiritual food? Spiritual, obviously. But how did the disciples take it? Listen to what they say in verse 33. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him some food? Someone bring him some chicken? Did did he eat? What? Did he go to McDonald's? Did he already eat? And Jesus has to correct him in verse 34. And he goes, no, come on, guys. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is my deal. This is what I'm after. And you see that the disciples are not on the same page with Jesus. In fact, they're never on the same page with Jesus. He's focused here. He's focused on... And they're, they're off in la-la land. They're, they're focused on their own selfish inward... That was their deal. And of course, uh, immediately after this whole... The whole Samaritan population comes out. The disciples are like, oh my goodness, look, look at them. Now they're all coming. And Jesus is greeting with them. He stays with them. He, he talks with them and teaches them. And they're just unbelievable. But it doesn't stop there. Because you come into the next passage and it says, Jesus heals an official son when he comes, in, uh, uh, when he comes into the next town. The official son. Okay. You already know all the background, of course, the Roman first century and the Jewish population and the national and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to go ahead and recap you a little bit. You have the Jews who were conquered by the Romans. 
The Romans had a great relationship with the Jews, great relationship with the Jews. In that, the Romans would allow you to carry on your own ceremonies, your own practices, your own, they would let you have your own little culture as long as you paid taxes. They didn't care. They didn't care. That was, the, that was the relationship. And so what would happen would be you would have this Caesar who would, who would appoint these little puppet rulers in these area. The area over this, uh, over this particular place was uh, Pilate. Pilate ruled there. Herod ruled in another place. This is where they ruled. And uh, what they would do is they would set these officials up in this town to maintain a Roman presence type of there. But you carried on the way you wanted to. You did what you wanted to do. You could have your religious. You could worship your own gods, all that. But you had to pay taxes to Rome because they ruled. That was the relationship. But see, they had these... Ro- they had these weird laws set up, these Romans did, because they, they oppressed the people. Uh, some of the laws, which made the Jews hate them. Some of the laws were like this one. Uh, it, was, it was legal in this day, if you were a Roman citizen, and you were walking through a town, no matter what, what time of day, no matter what day, you could take whatever you were carrying and drop it at the feet of a Jewish citizen, and by law, they had to carry it for you for one mile. That was law. Uh, one of the laws... And the Jews hated the Romans for this. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? The old official comes up, and, he, and they're waiting. He's the Messiah. He's going to knock them off. And he's going he's to lay into them. He's going to let them have it. And what does he do? He heals his son. And the Jews are going, I don't get this. This makes no sense. I'm on my way to work, man. I'm, I'm running late the way it is. Got to take care of, you know, my wife and our 15 kids. And, and I'm on my way to work, and it's, I'm late the way it is. And this Roman citizen comes up to me. He drops his stuff, and I have to care for him one mile. And you're, what am I supposed to do about that? And Jesus says, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. And they go, what? What are you talking about? They're on a different page. Of course, there was other laws that were more severe. If a Roman army was coming through a Jewish town, it was law. That if they needed fed, they could go into any household they wanted and take all the food to feed their army. It was legal. And they could walk right in your front door, push your kid down, kick your cat, shove you against the wall, take out all your food. And if you tried to stop them, they could beat you up. You couldn't do anything about it. And they would come to Jesus and say, you don't understand. They, they push my, they kick my cat. And they take my food. I mean, what am I supposed to do? And they beat me up when I try to stop them. What am I supposed to do about this? And Jesus says, if they strike you on your right cheek, turn to them and the other as well. And they go, what? He's lost his mind. And, he, and, it's, and, he, and John goes on because you come into chapter 5 and he's not even, and his, his brothers get on him in this into chapter 7 as we'd already looked at. But you come into chapter 5 and, and Jesus is not mingling with the, you know, the, 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 the cream of, of the crop society. He's not hanging around with the district superintendents. He's not taking the big churches. I mean, he's hanging around the, the he, look at this, the healing at the pool. He's hanging around with the degenerates of society. The lame, the blind, the, the poor, the, 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 the leprous. You ever seen leprosy people in India? Ugh. I mean, they're just he's hanging around those kind of people. And his disciples are just, they're flabbergasted. And so all these, and you come into chapter 5, verse 4, 16, all these testimonies begin to come about about Jesus. Who is this guy? No one even knows who they are. Well, up to this point, this is really neat. Up to this point, I want to ask you, how many disciples does Jesus have? Most of us would say 12. Is that right what you're going to say? Good girl. Most people are going to say 12. And you're right. They just have 12, 12 disciples. But actually, he has five over 5,000 disciples, not even including the women and children, just the men. Because you come into chapter 6, and all these people are following Jesus. 
they're all following Jesus. And just to, to show you this, if you come down to uh, verse 25 of chapter 6, and I'm jumping ahead just for a second here, um, they're looking for Jesus, and when they find him on the other side of the lake, they come up to him and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, which means they think that they are his disciples. And so they address him as, Rabbi, hey, where are you been? And so Jesus has all of these disciples, followers, who are, hear this now, are following, but they're not really following. And you come into chapter 6, and Jesus, is, is, he's got he's to settle this matter. Um, let me enter something here. Let me just interject something. Jesus is not like me. I went to college. I did master's work. I've read all the church growth stuff. And a lot of it, not all of it's bad. Some of it's good stuff. Even you know, how I tell you, some of it's good stuff. But some of the object is, is just get bodies in buildings and then we'll save them. Jesus never does that, man. He does not act like me. You've got a millionaire comes into the church and says, I think I want to start going here. And we're going, whew, come on in. Have a seat. What do you think? Take an offering? I'd say so. <laughs> and that, that's, that's our response. Now, Jesus, you've got this millionaire who comes in the church and says, hey, I want to take a membership class. And Jesus goes, are you sure? You understand what it entails? Sure, yeah, yeah, I know. I go to church on Sunday. And Jesus says, I tell you what, you want to join my church? Go and sell everything you have, then you can be. You can come here. And the disciples are going, Rabbi, shut up. <laughs> Give him time. We'll work on him. But Jesus is not like that. He doesn't, he doesn't take flattery either. You get people come up to me and go, good teacher. Still call me good. Come on, man. Don't call me good. There's only one that's good. And so he's, he's got these, he's got 5,000 men, not even including women and children. I mean, he's got these 5,000 followers. They're all surrounding him. And the disciples are going, wow, look at all this. But of course, they're kind of guarding their position. And uh, don't want anybody to get too close. And so they, they see all these people coming and uh, they look to Jesus and go, hey man, we got a great following and it's wonderful, but you better send them and get something to eat because hey, they're, even if, they get, if they get back now, they might be able to find something. Hey, we, we got a problem on our hands. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes, uh, what does he do? He goes, you feed them. Go ahead, you take care of it. You, I'll, I'll leave you in charge. <laughs> of course they're like, what? You can't feed them. And one of them says, well, even if we had like eight month wages, we couldn't feed them. And uh, Peter comes over and goes, well, I stole some of this from a kid over there. I got a couple pieces of bread and some fish. But I mean, that's, not, that's only going to go so far. And Jesus says, give it to me. He blesses it. It's wham, this great miracle buffet. Everyone eats all they want. And you come down in verse 14. And listen to this, folks. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to the mountain by himself. In other words, hey, he's come to be king, king of Israel. You've got all these people going, hey, look, at, look what he just did. Hey, he's got to be king. And they run to make him king. And what does he do? He rushes off. He runs away. Because what kind of king do you think they wanted to make him? Physical king. Physical king. Uh, I've got a king. Um... I used to have a very moral and upright king, Bill Clinton. But uh, 
now I've got a uh, now I've got a new king, and we're we're praying for him every day, hoping he'll be better. And we do need to pray for our leadership, biblical. And um, he's my king, George George W. And uh, he's my king. I pay taxes to him, and he uh, he writes all these things down. I got to do and publishes them in the newspaper. I read him, do him. And uh, but he's my king. But you see, he lives in Washington and in Texas. Well, he lives everywhere right now, but he's always around. But he, he's my king, but he lives out there. And he sets up all these laws that we all have to abide by and we all live by. But sometimes I can override his, his laws to some degree. For instance, one of the laws that he has is, is the speed limit. And we all do the speed limit, right? When it's 55, you never go 56. It's a law, right? He sets these laws up, and yet you sometimes it's the middle of the night, you're out by yourself. In fact, I've been going down the highway with a speed limit at 65, doing 70, and have police cars pass me. Go. And so he's my king, and he sets up these laws, but I mean, sometimes he sets up other laws too that I kind of dismiss from time to time. Jaywalking. You can only walk across the street if there's a crosswalk. Whatever that means. I probably shouldn't talk about taxes, should I? But he's my king, my king, my physical king. But I've got another king. And you know where he lives? He's made it very, very, very uh, impressive upon me to such an extent. He does not want to be out there type of king. The king that I have, my, my Jesus, who's my king, He's not a Jesus who lives up in heaven and he gives me these lists of things that I need to do. And when I got saved, he says, here's your call. Go do it. Do it the best you can. And uh, make sure you go to church on Sunday and, hey, do, do, and give me a list. He didn't, he didn't do that. He lives right in here. And wherever I go, he goes. Whatever I feel, he feels. Whatever I'm involved with, he's involved with. And I'm living underneath his authority and rulership in my life all the time. And you have the people who want to make him king, but they don't want that kind of king. They want... This type of king. And what does Jesus do? He runs away. He goes up the side of the mountain, tells his disciples to go out in a boat. He meets him out in the boat in the middle of the night, goes over to the other side. And what happens is, is in verse 24 of chapter 6, the crowd wakes up, doesn't see Jesus anywhere, and listen to what it says. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there, they got into boats and went, in search, uh, went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. And of course, when they find him, they come up to him and go, Rabbi, hey, teacher, where'd you go? It's breakfast. Where are you at? And of course, Jesus, in verse 26, looks at them and says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw a miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and your bellies are full. He cuts right to the chase. He says, this is why you're, that's why you're looking for me. Then he says, don't work for food. You don't work, don't live for those kind of things. That's not what God wants you focused on. And then, of course, in verse 28, they say, uh, then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And they get in this huge argument. And, of course, um, you can see their self-centeredness come into it. And so uh, he says, hey, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. You come down in verse 30, and it says, so they asked him, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Uh, for instance, what shall we do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them manna from heaven to eat. Could use a little manna right now. I mean, it's breakfast anyway. You see their, you see their, their ploy? Well, what miraculous sign are you going to do? I mean, it is breakfast. How about manna? And they pick an illustration. They pick an illustration 
which is kind of talking about what they really want him to do. And what does Jesus do? He constantly brings him out of the physical back to the spiritual, what he's talking about. And he says in verse 20, 32, he says, I tell you the truth. That, uh, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Uh, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, well, give us this bread. And then he says, I am the bread from heaven. Hey, eat me, eat my flesh. Now, is he talking about physical there? Here, take a chunk out and go, go get, eat. No, he's not. He's talking about spiritual stuff. You know what I often find is really neat? Stick with me on this. You know what I often find is really neat? Jesus often compares. He often compares our love and our seeking after him and our service for him and our, and our commitment to him. He often compares that with like bodily drives. Fasting. It's the replacing of the physical, normal circumstance of my life with the spiritual. Hey, I'm going to set aside food, which my body craves, but I, I want you more than what my body craves food. That's the idea of fasting. It's replacing. And so he constantly replaces that with, with spiritual. And of course, there, uh, you know, he says, hey, you, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which he's talking about. Run after me like you run after food. Hey, you've come all the way across. You, you, look, you want me to be king, and it's all for your food. Get past the food. Run after me like you run after food. And of course, they get in this huge argument about it. They don't understand. They don't want to understand. You come down to verse 60, and it says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, What? You mean love Jesus more than food? You mean run after, run after God like I run after, like I run after food? Imagine if the young guys of our world ran after Jesus like they ran after girls. We won champagne a long time ago. What if we ran after Jesus like we ran after money? And they, they look at him and say, in verse 60, listen to this. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I mean, you, Jesus, you sound like, I get this all the time. Jeremiah, wow, I love your services. Man, I love what you're finding in the word. It's really wonderful. But I need you to clear some, clarify something. I mean, you sound like, Church should be your life. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Praise the Lord. You finally got what I'm talking about. I mean, you act like that I shouldn't have anything else going on in my life but him. Yes, you heard. That's the idea. That's what it's all about. And of course, how do they respond back here? They said, well, this is a hard teaching. Who could accept it? And Jesus comes on and says, does this offend you? And then they go down and he, he says, hey, this is what it's all about. And verse 66 says, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. And he went from a church of five, over 5,000 to 12. And the real disciples, the real 12, Jesus turns to them and says, you want to get out of here too? And for the first time they realize, well, and they still got problems. And you'll see that later on in the gospel. But they say, where can we go? You're the ones that have the word of life. What am I talking about this evening? First principle of discipleship. It's more than just a physical thing. It's way more than a physical thing. And most of us know this. It's more than just showing up to church on Sunday. It's way more than that, man. Way more than that. Because you can show up to church on Sunday and never show up to church. In fact, you're going to have people that are going to get to heaven and say, I went to church every Sunday. I'm a Nazarene, praise the Lord. That's right. I was on the Sunday school. I was on the board. And I went to... And Jesus is going to say, well... Do I know you? Lord, Lord, I healed in your name. These are phenomenal. I preached in your name. I was an evangelist. He doesn't say, I never knew you. I don't know you. 
Because it's not about the things that I did. It's about relationship with him. Which tells me that it's more than just physical things. Could it be that, and hear this, I said the other night that it's more than just the end result that Jesus wants. It's kind of the reason why we get to the results type of thing. I told you about that. I come up to a party. Or I come up to a kid who's, who's inviting me to a party. And it's not a good thing. I don't want to go. But I don't just go, well, I'm a Christian. I, don't, I can't go to stuff like that. And walk away. I look at him and I say, uh, I don't want to go to that. And the reason in my mind, as I turn from that guy, as I turn from that guy, I say, Jesus, hey, the reason I'm not going to that party is because I love you. And my very act of turning from that is worship to you. The very act of me turning the channel, I do that as worship to you. And it's more than just physical stuff that I do. It takes on spiritual meaning in my life. So the first principle of discipleship is about inside spiritual stuff. And I see, I see big problems of this. I see big problems with this. Now, we all know that, like, obviously, smoking, it's going to kill you, makes your teeth look ugly. Coffee does the same thing. But we have people who come to church for the very first time, brand new Christians. They're not even Christians. They come in, they smell like smoke, flip their cigarette as they come in the front door, blowing it out. They come in, sit in the back seat, yawning, and God moves on their life. God speaks to them. They want to get saved. How he preaches his phenomenal sermon. They come down crying, fall down on the altar. And you know what we do to them when they stand up? Wow, you're saved. Well, you need to get a suit, and we need to get you also. And uh, you can't smoke anymore. Give me those cigarettes, right? You've got a lighter, too. Give me that right there. And what kind of music do you listen to? I'll be at your house this afternoon. We're going to go through that. Do you have cable? Get rid of cable. And we give them these lists. We give these these list. Now, you can't do it. And you, and I heard that joke. What's your, and they get all these things which are right, but they don't know why they're doing them. I heard a pastor's wife tell me this. It was, it was a true story. I come up Sunday morning to this church, and there's this pastor's wife. And I'm not making a statement for this. I'm just telling you the story. But she's got earrings. And everybody's excited. And they're looking at them going, oh, they look cute. And they're diamonds. Her husband bought them. 25th anniversary. And she's all excited. I'm like, just earrings. And she goes, well, I've never had earrings before. I said, never? I said, why are you making them do it now? She says, for 25 years, I never had earrings because my mom told me that God didn't want me to have them. Or that I couldn't have earrings because Christians didn't have earrings. And so she lived 25 years not having earrings before she finally said, Jesus, do you care if I have earrings? And Jesus said, no, get the earrings, dude. And so she spent 25 years doing something because, well, that's what, that's what I do. And there was no inward. Uh, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't drink. And I don't have sex before marriage. I don't live in sexual morality. But the reason I don't do those four things is not because you don't want me to. And the reason I don't do these things is not because my DS would kick me out of the church of the Nazarene. I'm telling you the truth. That's not why I do them. I, that's not why I don't do them. The reason I don't do these things is because I'm in love with Jesus. Amen. I smoked for 10 years of my life. And I didn't know Nazarene manual I, from a hole in the ground. I didn't know anything about that. I went to the church of the Nazarene, got saved. God was moving in my life. I'd come outside of church and go, wow, that was a great service. Wow, wonderful, wasn't it? And people were going... <laughs> And one day, one day, God came up to me in the back of a, I worked at, I worked at, uh, I worked at uh, UPS, I loaded these trucks, and uh, I said, I need a cigarette. Holy Spirit spoke, bam. 
He goes, you're addicted to cigarettes. He goes, wouldn't it be something, Jeremiah, if you could be addicted to me like you're addicted to cigarettes? And I quit smoking. Not because, well, that's something Christians do. I quit smoking because Jesus told me that he didn't want me addicted to anything but right. him. Right. And I began to live my life that way. And I began to live my, and I, I built this relationship with him. And it was more than physical things. Because, see, you can come to church every Sunday, read your Bible, not smoke, drink, or chew, and still be a sinner. Right. Isn't that scary? Do you agree with that? Are you with me? <laughs> you can be doing all those things. You can be doing all those things. I've seen evangelists who preach the most phenomenal sermons and, whoa, whoa, and go back to a trailer of pornography. How do you explain that? One, the power's in the words, not on him. And God will use the word before they'll use him. But the idea is it's just, it's more than physical things that I do. There's meaning. Uh, Father, we love you this evening. And I'm not talking about anything tonight that we don't already know. To the one who's not a Christian, we understand that it's about knowing you. As we looked at uh, earlier this week in the overview of Hebrews, it's all about intimacy with you. You did not come to set up a religious system. You did not to come to set up the... You came to have a relationship with me, man. It's all about intimacy with you. So to the, non, to the non-Christian, it's about knowing who you are. It's about, for the first time, being able to have an intimate, personal relationship with, G- with you, God, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And to the one who is already in relationship with you, teach us to disciple and, not, and yet not impose rules. Give us wisdom beyond our years. Let us not be distracted with even the good things of life. I love you tonight, Lord Jesus. And I am free. I am not a Christian living my life every day trying not to sin. I am a Christian living every day of my life in freedom to live for you. In the name of Jesus, I am free. I'm not in bondage to drugs anymore. I'm not a slave to my body. I'm not a slave to cigarettes. In the name of Jesus, I am free. And I don't live my life trying not to sin. I don't live my life as an object of oppression. I live my life to live my life for you. And I live my life in absolute freedom. And I have intimacy with you. We talked today about being pessimistic and optimistic. I fear that we're going to turn into a pessimistic church that lives our lives by such rigid rules that we we miss the freedom of serving and living a life so abundant and fruitful. On one hand, that freedom is never to turn into an an, an opportunity to indulge a sinful nature. But in that same hand is the God-given right to live life and live it abundantly. I don't want to impose rules on young Christians. I want to say, you are free. Be free. Don't don't use your freedom to be in bondage again. Live your life for him. I fear, Jesus, I fear that somehow maybe we may be slipping into a life that's bogged down with trials and, and rigid lives. I'm supposed to be a light to the world. 
Teach me to walk and live in you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I don't know where you're at tonight. And I don't, I don't know how to talk to you about this. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up living the life that most people testify leaving. And uh, I'm telling you as a Christian, man, I am free. And there is no other lot. You cannot imagine what it's like. I've never liked people get up and give 50-minute testimonies and then tell about how they were saved from that to Jesus in two minutes. But I'll tell you about my testimony that I cannot tell you what it's like to live, to live a life of 22 years in bondage to everything you could imagine and then finding freedom. I can't tell you what that's like. Man, I am free. And my life is not defined. And I don't know if this makes me a bad Nazarene or evangelist, but my life is not defined by rules and by these things. Yeah, I have a list. Yeah, I have rules. But th those things are determined in my life for a love for Jesus. And I'm an evangelist for no other reason than he has called me to that. And when I show up to church on Sunday, it's not because, well, I need to go. It's because I'm dying to be with him. I'm dying to learn about him more. And I live a life of, of so abundant and free and so above the life that I have because I'm not in slavery anymore. I'm free to live my life abundantly with Jesus. And it so surpasses just the physical things in my life. I, and, and of course, we probably all live that life. But I challenge you, if you maybe, don't, maybe you do love him with all your heart and you're living for him, but if you're not living in that freedom, it's not that you won't go to heaven. I don't, I'm not going to say that. But man, you're probably just going to make other people go, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. We have something that they don't have. Do you know him like that tonight? Do you know him beyond the physical things that you do? Do you know him as Jesus the Savior? As your Father in heaven you walk with and talk with every day? Man, I hope you do. Father, I love you this evening. I do. I love you so much. Transform me. Mold me. Draw me into intimacy with you. It's my number one goal. I have tasted and seen that you are good. And that everything is not good. That is not of you. You are a marvelous and wonderful Father. And I am tickled pink to spend the rest of my life with you. I pray that you would teach me more about yourself and open my eyes. That I may begin to see my world the way you do. And function how you've created me to function. Father, we ask you to come tonight and speak to our innermost hearts. Liberate us to live for you. Teach us to be joy, joyful and happy. Speak to us this evening, and we ask these things, Father, in the name of the one who has made it all possible, Jesus, our Christ, our Messiah. For it is in his name we pray. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken.